Hey, I'm Alan Hunter. You're listening on the Pantheon Network. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. Hey, this is Kenny Wayne Shepherd, and you're listening to my weekly mixtape with Brian Colbert. Enjoy the episode. Welcome to My Weekly Mixtape, a podcast that takes the classic mixtape approach to building a modern playlist. I'm your host, Brian Colburn. Blues rock has always been held in a high regard in my life. From the classic rock music my parents raised me on, such as ACDC, ZZ Top, Jimi Hendrix, Led Zeppelin, Cream, and the Rolling Stones, all were rooted in the blues. As I started branching out and discovering music on my own, once again, blues played a big role including artists such as Stevie Ray Vaughan, whose catalog was the subject of episode 27, Roy Buchanan, Walter Trout, Joe Bonamassa, Johnny Lang, as well as legends such as Albert King, Muddy Waters, Buddy Guy, and B.B. King. Tonight on My Weekly Mixtape, I'm extremely honored to welcome a modern blues rock legend to the show, the one and only Kenny Wayne Shepherd. Kenny, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me tonight. Hey, man. Thanks for having me. I'd like to start by asking all of my first-time guests, what does the word mixtape mean to you? Well, I mean, mixtape, I think, by definition, goes back to, I don't know, you look like you might be from my generation, but when we were kids, somebody basically would put together a cassette of all their favorite songs or some of their favorite songs and uh, put them in whatever order they wanted to, and it so that they didn't have to carry around the massive collection of cassettes or CDs or what have you. And they would, so they put their favorite songs on one cassette. And sometimes you might put a, a mixtape together to give to one of your friends, right? So that it's like, you have this collection of music. These are your favorite songs. Well, check this out, you know, and to turn other people on to songs as well. Well, I'm extra excited for our discussion tonight because it's not often I get to interview someone who themselves conducts amazing interviews as evidenced in your 10 Days Out Blues from the Backroads documentary. And speaking about that subject, can you talk about the significance of 10 Days Out for you as an artist, as well as what you took away from the musicians you had a chance to speak and subsequently jam with for the film? Yeah, I mean, that that project, I think, was pretty important. I mean, it was important to me on a personal level because I admired these musicians and I've been a fan of the blues genre for most of my life. And I just felt like it was an opportunity to do a unique project that recognized some of these incredible musicians, some of which are household names, uh, and then some of which 
were incredibly talented, but never really broke into the mainstream for whatever reason. And, and so, uh, you know, to give the blues community and just music lovers in general, something really unique to seek their teeth into. So we did the documentary and we traveled the South of the U S and went and met up with these blues musicians. And, and I had a tour bus, uh, loaded up with recording gear and made it a mobile recording studio. And then we had another bus with a film crew and we just made it a live album and documentary while traveling and meeting up with these incredible musicians. And uh, it's one of the, probably the most significant projects that I've ever done as personally for me, it was, and I think it's incredibly unique and special and it documented American history. I mean, that's American music and these are American musicians. And, and unfortunately, you know, a lot of them are no longer with us today. Yeah. I mean, we lost, and even before the project was released, we had lost five, I think of the featured performers. And so. Now, I think it's just about it. almost everybody that was on it is no longer here. So it was an important thing. It continues to be an important project. Well, I want to hop into the musical DeLorean for a moment here and go back to 1995, which was my senior year in high school, a year where grunge and alternative had completely taken over rock radio and yet Led Better Heights, your debut album reached number one on the Billboard Heat Seekers chart and Deja Voodoo, which featured Corey Sterling on vocals, reached number nine on the mainstream rock tracks chart. Is there a specific tour or moment in and around that time of your career that you feel was the musical catalyst for you, given the state of rock radio at the time? Well, there was a lot going on at the time. And, you know, but that was also an era where it was still that kind of music that I, that I make blues based rock music was still heavily supported at radio. And there was a format that embraced that kind of music. There's not really that format, that mainstream rock radio format doesn't really exist anymore. Right. And the scope of the business has changed so much, but at the time, yeah, there was a lot going on, but we had more musical genres that people were, it was a broader palette back then, you know, and people appreciated more types of music. Things have gotten really narrow lately, in my opinion, as far as what you would consider mainstream anything, but you know, you had grunge hitting the scene. There was probably still some, some hair rock that was being made. I mean, there was blues rock, there was album oriented rock, there was you know, progressive, there was, you know, then all the other things like top 40 and country and, you know, whatever else, but it was an interesting time. There was a lot going on. And I, and I was, I mean, I'm grateful. I, I'm grateful that my first album came out in 95, my second album in 97, by the time the third album came out in uh, 2000, you know, that's when the world really of music and music consumption really started to change with the whole Napster thing and all that mm -hmm. stuff. But my first two records were still released in what I believe was the real golden age of the music business where you could put out a record and artists like me could still put out an album and watch it rise in the charts and, and uh, sell millions of copies. I mean, I have gold and platinum records hanging on my walls here at home. And, and uh, I just don't know if that's something that, I don't know if that'll ever be possible for a blues artist in today's world because, you know, everything's changed so much. But I was grateful to have come up there. Well, as a blues rock fan my entire life, I have to say, I certainly hope that that is something that's possible in the future. Right. <laughs> now, you had the chance both in 1998 and 2015 to tour with Van Halen. And while 
your playing techniques are different. One thing reigns true for me as a music fan. You're both masters of your craft on the guitar. I'd love to hear what those tours meant to you, as well as your thoughts on sharing the stage with Eddie Van Halen over the decades at two different points in your career. Well, you know, I've been fortunate enough to be able to tour with and and meet a lot of my heroes over the years and collaborate with them, things like that. So I consider myself to be very, very fortunate. Eddie Van Halen, since you mentioned him, I mean, I did a tour with him in the 90s. And that's when I became friends with him was as a result of that tour. That was when they had the Van Halen 3, right, with Gary Sharon singing. Yep. And we did that whole tour with them. And it, it, it was just great to me. I mean, he was so nice. And, you know, we have a lot of history. We had a lot of history. And then and then we did the, the final Van Halen tour in 2015. We mm -hmm. did that entire tour with those guys. And I spoke with him every day. Every single day he came and found me and come give me a big hug and we sit down and talk and hang out. You know, he's just, he was always very gracious and very generous with his time when it came to me. You know, two very different styles of playing. But I think that's one of the reasons why I worked as a lineup. And that's why we did it more than once, you know, Van Halen, Kenny Wayne Shepherd, because, you know, it's kind of like, it's my music is guitar based, guitar centric, guitar driven. And, you know, for the first couple of albums in my career, I was just a guitar player, didn't really sing right. in my own band. So a lot of similarities in that regard, but the genres are different, but still they're connected because, you know, blues and rock go hand in hand. So. It just worked really well and, and it was an honor, you know, to know him and, and to be part of those tours with him. Well, one of the things I want to jump on is what you just said there, because throughout your discography, you've slowly but surely stepped up to the mic more and more as the years have gone on and added a whole new dynamic to the band, such as two of my favorite tracks from your 2017 album, Lay It On Down, Baby Got Gone and Diamonds and Gold. Is there a moment during the writing process where you decide, you know, this is a song that I need to sing or using examples from that same album, like nothing but the night or Louisiana rain, where you say, you know, this might work better with Noah on vocals. Mm -hmm. Well, the, yes. I mean, that's become the, the regular dynamic in the band now is where we, we basically have two lead singers in the band. Right. I mean, Noah's been with me since my second record and, you know, he sang on so many great songs over the years. And so, you know, he's very much a part of the family. And I like the idea that we have two lead singers in the band. My voice and his voice are really, really different, but they blend well when we sing mm -hmm. harmonies together. And because they're so different, it gives us the ability, I think, to record and perform a broader range of material than if we only had one singer, because there certainly have been some songs that, you know, Noah may have tried to sing and it just didn't quite fit his voice. And then I was able to successfully go in and sing them. And the, the song still made the record where if there was only one voice, it probably wouldn't have made the record and vice versa. I've walked out there many a time and, and been like, oh, I'm going to try to sing this song and then it just doesn't work. And then he goes in and kills it. So, you know, songs are saved from the cutting room floor as a result of having more tools that are disposable. Well, in 1997, you talked about the album earlier, you released your massive breakthrough album, Trouble Is, and it's an album that recently concluded celebrating its 25th anniversary. When you sat down with the band to revisit the album in its entirety for the Trouble Is 25 release, you at that point had more than two decades of hindsight and live renditions under your belt. Did that hindsight color those 25th anniversary recording sessions in any way? 
I mean, a little bit, but not not what you would think. I mean, you know, I know a lot of musicians that have made records over the years, and and they've some guys don't even want to listen to their own records, <laughs> and, and some guys wish that they could go back and and redo things. And so this would be would have been that opportunity if I had remorse or you know was second guessing myself or wasn't happy with the record. This would have been the chance to reinvent the album or re, you know change all of that stuff. But I actually found that you know, looking back and listening to it and re-recording the stuff is like how well the music stands up today, 25 years later, and how proud I am of that and the performance that's on that. I didn't feel the need to go and change a lot of it, you know? It's like, we just did an, an updated version of it and we took some subtle liberties here and there. But, you know, when we started trying to mess with it, it seemed like we started to lose the vibe of it and that's what made it so special. So... But no, I'm, I've always been really proud of that record and, and I'm proud of all my albums. Thankfully, I've never made a record that I just go, oh man, I'd love to take that one back, you know? 100%. Now on that Trouble Is album is one of your signature songs, Blue on Black. Did you have any idea the trajectory that that song would take and the overall impact it would have on music in general, including the cover by Five Finger Death Punch in 2019 that featured you, Brantley Gilbert, and Brian May of Queen? You know, when, when I wrote that song, and especially once we had recorded it and we were finished with the Troublous record and we went in the studio and we were mixing it, we knew that we had something incredibly special, but you never really know how far something is actually going to go or how the people are going to react to it until you just put it out there and see what happens. And I think, you know, everybody was very pleasantly surprised to see the, the type of reaction that we got from that song and continues to get played on classic rock radio and it, and, and it continues to reach new people. And, you know, the Five Finger Death Punch guys covered it, which was fantastic. And you know, I'll wait for somebody else to come along and cover it because I think it's a great song. As far as I'm concerned, the more versions of Blue on Black, the better. I can actually hear a country version of that, but I digress. Originally, when the song first came out, I owned the original CD copy of Trouble Is along with the CD single of Blue on Black because it contains both the road mix version of the song as well as the band's epic cover of Jimi Hendrix's Voodoo Child in a studio version, the live version being a concert staple for the band for many, many years. Now, along with it being a concert staple, you have also been involved in the Experience Hendrix tours over the years, a few of which I was fortunate enough to catch, and I'd love to know your thoughts on the impact that Jimi Hendrix had on blues rock as a whole, and if there were any collaborations from those tours that resonated with you personally as an artist well yeah i mean jimmy Hendrix, his, his impact on music cannot be understated i mean it's actually hard to, to really quantify it but i mean he's one of the greatest guitar players maybe the greatest of all time massive influence on me and many many other guitar players so uh, you know i grew up playing his songs and and at weekends traditionally have ended almost all of my concerts with uh, doing a rendition of voodoo child it's just kind of become a mainstay in the set list and something people come, you know, sometimes people come just to see me play that song. And uh, I would do that on the Experience Hendrix tour. And, you know, that was a cool tour because he had such great guitar players, fantastic musicians who were all influenced by Jimmy, paying homage to him by performing his music. And a lot of collaborations would happen and things like that. So, yeah, I really love that tour. I, I look forward to possibly doing it again in the, in the not too distant future. 
Well, while we're talking about collaborations and me being a bass player myself, I have to mention one collaboration that in 1999, when I first saw it, actually surprised me when I picked up your copy of Live On, that on your cover of Fleetwood Mac's Oh Well, one Les Claypool of Primus played bass for you. Now, I know Les is a musical chameleon, but I'm kind of curious what it was like working with the quote-unquote blues rock variant of Les Claypool, for lack of a better word. Well, if you listen to that song, I mean, we're covering Oh Well by Fleetwood Mac. Yes. And, I mean, we did it as a rock song. There's not anything really bluesy to the our version of that song. But he killed it, man, especially at the end of that song in the last solo you can hear him just going off on bass. It's really incredible. But yeah, that was one of those really cool things that you hear about happening sometimes when you're working at famous recording studios. Like we recorded, you know, several different records at the record plant, Sausalito, California, and that's a legendary place no longer exists, but a lot of people would work there. So you never know who might be working in one of the other rooms. And sometimes collaborations happen just because you're in the same, you're under the same roof, you know? And so that's what happened. Like he was in there, he could hear us down the hallway. He pops his head into the control room just to hear what we're doing. Derry Harrison, who produced that record, knew him. And we all said, Hey man, why don't you play bass on this thing? And he's like, yeah, let's do it. You know? And, and it just happened on the spot. Then he killed it. It's great. It's a killer version. Over the years, you've toured and recorded albums with Reese Winans on keyboards, Tommy Shannon on bass, and Chris Layton on drums and percussion. Most blues rock fans that I'm friends with refer to simply as the original members of Stevie Ray Vaughan's Double Trouble. Can you talk about how those musical relationships were initially forged and what you feel those members have brought to your music over the years? Well, I met Chris first. And I was like 15 years old and I was playing a show in Austin, Texas and opening it up for this guy, Bill Carter. And Bill Carter is one of the guys that I think he helped co-write the song Crossfire and Willie the Wimp, uh, a couple of, you know, some of the songs Stevie had done over the years. And so Billy was, he was a headline act at Antones and Chris was playing drums for him. And then I was the opening act. And so they asked me to get up and, and play with them that night. And that was the first time I met Chris. And then I signed my record deal probably a year later. And then when it came time to go in the studio, Chris had given me his phone number. So we gave him a call and asked him if he'd be interested in playing drums on my first record. And he said yes. And that was the beginning of an incredibly long and personally close relationship that he and I had. But then when it came time to do the second album, Trouble Is, we brought everybody in. And so Tommy Shannon came and played bass and Reese Winans came and played keyboards and you know, it was just incredible for me. I mean, I'm such a fan of those guys and their music that they did with Stevie Ray Vaughan. And they were like my band before I had a band because I used to just sit around the house playing along with them and their music. So uh, when it came time for me to play with them, it just, it was all very natural. I think it was, it felt very natural for them because a lot of my style of playing had evolved around their music and learning their music and stuff. And so it was a great fit. And so they were on the second album and the third album. Chris has played drums on every album I've ever done, except for one. And uh, he's been in my live band now, close to 20 years. 
Well, Kenny, we've been talking about the past for a while. I want to talk about the present now. On your new album, Dirt on My Diamonds, Volume 1, you offer what might be my favorite vocal delivery of yours across all of your albums, and that is the title track. As a songwriter, do you find it challenging to continue to push your personal musical boundaries while remaining faithful to the sound that you've honed and perfected across 10 studio albums prior to this? Well, I mean, it definitely, my goal is to try not to repeat myself musically. I want, I don't want people to feel like they know what my new album sounds like without even hearing it yet. You know, I don't want to be that predictable. So, you know, it, it can be challenging. I mean, which is also why I incorporate other influences from other genres into the music that I write, because then when you do that, it helps open up a lot more musical opportunities than just staying within the blues box, you know, right. which sometimes can be a very narrow format if you're just going to stick within the traditional blues realm. And so I've always tried to push the envelope and, and try to bring outside influences into that world to help kind of take the music into different directions. And we certainly have done that on this record for sure. One of the questions I want to ask, and I apologize if I get this wrong, because it's certainly not my intention, on Sweet and Low, it sounds like there's a DJ scratching. In my heart of hearts, I think that's you doing it on the guitar. Is that correct? It's not on the guitar, no. It's not on the guitar, okay. It's an actual record scratch. And uh, it's really funny, too, because some of my older fans don't quite know what to make of it. They're like, you know, what is that sound? And I'm like, well, it's... You know, everybody from from my generation knows what that sound is because, yes. you know, we come from the birth of hip hop, you know, the early days of rap and hip hop. And so, you know, we grew up hearing that stuff, whether you're a massive hip hop fan or not. I've always just been a music fan, right? Like I like good music and there's bad versions of all kinds of music, right? So there's bad blues, there's bad hip hop, there's bad rock, there's bad country, but there's great versions of all that stuff too. And so I grew up hearing all, everything. I mean, I, I heard all kinds of music from hip hop to blues and rock and country and gospel and funk and jazz and all of that stuff. And so eventually it all finds its way into the music that I'm writing and creating. And so it's just funny. It's like, you know, it's a very, it's a natural thing. It sounds very, um, it sounds appropriate for the song to me, but some people are like, what does that sound? And, and I'm like, okay, well, they're from the a little bit slightly earlier generation, but that's cool. Some of them really dig it. Some of them I think are not sure what to think about it, but I, I think it's pretty cool. You can count me on Team Dig It because anytime that there's a tip of a hat to another genre and exploring those boundaries in a way that works and is still musical, I'm all in on. Well, it's also like, when was the last time you heard somebody that has, uh, you know, the blues artist label on them, put something like that on a record? And it's like, you know, that's the thing. It's like, I don't want to be predictable. I want to continue pushing the envelope and doing things that not everybody else is doing or has already done. And then there's a track like Bad Intentions. That song to me feels like a statement, an exclamation point on the album. Musically, the song has this undeniable swagger, while lyrically, it almost comes across like a confession. Can you tell the story behind that one? Well, you have to understand that a, a lot of times when people are writing songs, not every song is it is uh, an autobiographical moment. It's not like, of course, you know, this is exactly what, what happened to me, 
you know, at some point in time. And we take a lot of liberties and we get very creative. You know, it can take, you can take one little experience that can spark an idea. And then by the end of writing the song, you've created this whole entire story that, you know, the only thing that ever actually happened was just like the original spark of the idea. This was just us having fun. I mean, the whole idea for the song title actually came, I was hanging out with a, Joe Bonamassa and he was doing a little interview with me and, and he, uh, he had said, you know, I, I, the way you play guitar, you know, he's like, you know, it's like you put 150% into every note. And it's like, you know, we just, I just know every time you walk out on the stage with your guitar that you got bad intentions, you know, meaning, you know, in not bad, like evil intentions, but like, no, it, just in my approach to my playing. Yeah, like you're a bad, bad man, you know. (laughs) And so I thought, you know, at the time I was like, that's a good title. I I actually thought I was, I was going to name the next album Bad Intentions, but then the album took on a different theme. So that didn't work for the title of the record, but I still wrote the song. But instead of writing the song about, you know, some guitar player, that's a great guitar player or something like that, we decided to make it a relationship song. So it's just, you know, to me, it's like the modern day version of, uh, of a kind of a hoochie coochie man song, you know, nice. where Muddy Waters is talking about, you know, how he's a man and, and he'll, you know, make love to a woman in five minutes time and do all this stuff. It's like, I'm, a, you know, just pounding on his chest about how <laughs> badass he is. Right. And that's kind of like ultimately different, but the same kind of approach to the lyrics of this song. It's the swagger. It's definitely the swagger. Yeah. Now going sure. back to the beginning as a mixtape maker, my whole life. You normally don't label a mixtape volume one unless you're certain that there's a volume two forthcoming. Is there a dirt on my diamonds volume two coming down the road? And if so, maybe when fans can expect it. Well, it's already done. So it's going to come. We just have to figure out when the right release date is. I would think it's probably going to happen about a year after this album has dropped. So, but yes, there's two volumes. And really, to me, if you go back to the first album that that I worked with Marshall Altman, uh, who's my co-producer on these two records, but the first one we did together was Lay It On Down. And then after that, we did The Traveler, which was our last studio record. And now we've done Dirt On My Diamonds Volume 1 and Volume 2. But to me, it's like, I feel like uh, looking at the body of work, it's almost like every album is like chapters in a book and, and one kind of seamlessly run flows into the next and it's like you know so we're it's like we're telling a musical story here and so that's kind of what sparked the idea of doing a volume one and a volume two because i really am looking at the albums that i've done with them it's one it's like almost like one body of work divided up into chapters awesome Kenny, if you had to sum up your musical legacy in three of the songs that you've written across your entire career, which three would you choose? Man, obviously Blue on Black would be one of them. You can't leave that one out. And probably Deja Voodoo, just because that was the song that put me on the map. First single off my first album. And frankly, I mean, you know, choosing songs is like, you know, choosing between your children, right? I know, I know. Choosing favorites (laughs) is doesn't go over well, but I will say that one of my absolute favorite songs that I've done in recent memory is a song called I Want You off of the Traveler record. 
Because to me, it's like, if you asked me to play you a song that I thought was the definition of contemporary blues or modern, the modern blues sound, in my opinion, from my perspective, that would be it. I mean, it's just got all the elements. It's got a really cool guitar riff. It's got ripping guitar solo. It's got this greasy ass groove to it. And we played in the show and I just, I really love playing that song every night. So I would certainly throw that one in there. Awesome. Well, Kenny, it's been an absolute pleasure talking blues rock with you tonight. Thank you so much for joining me on my weekly mixtape. Appreciate it. I want to thank all the mixtapers for tuning in tonight. And always remember, you can head to myweeklymixtape.com to hear the full catalog of my weekly mixtape episodes. And if you like what you're hearing on the show, you can help me out by either telling a friend, leaving the show a five-star review wherever you're tuning in, or by becoming a Patreon mixtaper at patreon.com forward slash my weekly mixtape. That's all for this week. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, enjoy the tunes. achieve the American dream, the big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would they shop? Would they shop? Would you kill? Yes. <laughs> My mom and dad. My mom and my dad. From Airship. The studio behind American Scandal comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, The Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.